From Nickelodeon Animation in Burbank, California, this is the Nickelodeon Animation Podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Hector Navarro. Welcome to the podcast. Our guest today is a screenwriter, producer, director, voice director, who, along with Arlene Klasky and Gabor Chupo, created The Rugrats, one of the most successful and beloved animated series of all time. Before that, he helped develop The Simpsons for The Tracy Ullman Show and pioneered the radio play style of recording voice actors for television animation. And after Rugrats, he co-created Recess and Lloyd in Space for Disney, all the while focusing on producing top-quality, character-driven family entertainment. It's my pleasure to get to talk to Paul Germain. My family is originally from Mexico. Mm -hmm. I would take vacations down into Mexico, and every time we would go to Mexico and come back, at that border wait line, there were these knockoff Bart Simpson piggy banks. So yeah, like, stuff I, like I, yeah, I love so that. Great. When you see that kind of stuff, I've seen a Chucky Bong around. <laughs> no way. Somebody yeah, took us to that. I yeah. mean, that was pretty wild. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's yeah. so funny. A Chucky Bong. Yep. Yeah. Well, listen, sometimes a baby's got to do. What a baby's got to do. That's right. There you go. Do. <laughs> I want to start at the beginning, beginning, because you... In doing my research, you went to school for economics. Yeah, right? I did. <laughs> Man, you really did do your I research. I did my research. So you went to school for economics and then decided to go to film school. That's right. What happened there? Okay, so I was always a film nut my whole life, right? I was also really, really into history. Uh, I was just very interested in, in historical things. I was kind of a big lefty. I kind of still am. <laughs> and I was interested in and I kind of thought that where I was going to go for a career was going to be toward history. Mm. I was like kind of a grade geek in high school and going that way. And my dad told me that if you really want to understand history, you have to understand economics. <laughs> so I took a course at UC Santa Cruz, which is where I started out in mm. economics. And I just loved it. I just, I, I got it. You know, you know how sometimes you take yeah. a course and you, you just understand something, you know, you know, supply and demand, where they meet, the grass. Uh, it just hit me. It just felt like, oh, so I decided to major in it. Yeah. And then I transferred to Berkeley after my second year at Santa Cruz. And while I was at Berkeley, it became clear to me that economics was all about business and people going in that direction, which is not something that interested me at all. Yeah. I was more of a, wanted to use economics to to talk about lefty things and stuff like that. It's not where it was. <laughs> and so finally I decided, you know, this, I kind of, in my third year, I finished the, the degree because it was, you know, I had the, it was my major and I had almost done all of it. So I thought I might as well finish this. Sure. But I had lost interest in it and I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. And I, I needed eight units of credit. I was at Berkeley. I need to graduate when I wanted to graduate. I needed eight units of credit over the summer. And I saw that UCLA had a course, a film course. Mm -hmm. So I thought, oh, I'll just I'll just take this film course. I always wanted to do film. And I went there and I did it and I go, this is it. And the, I got along really well with the professor. And I said, would you write me a letter of recommendation? And this was between my... I think it was between my junior and my senior year. I went back to Berkeley. I applied to film school and got in. Yeah. And I went to film school and, and that was 1980. What kind of stuff, you said you were a film nut your whole life. What kind of stuff did you love as a kid? Movies. Yeah. I was one of these, you know, you've, if you, if those of you are familiar with that book, uh, Easy Riders and Raging Bulls, about the, I was, I was just the right age to see all those great movies of the 70s yeah. and go, 
oh, I love this stuff, you know, Godfather and and then Ending with Raging Bull, all those movies in between. In the 1970s, if you went to a movie, it didn't matter what it was, you were likely to see a great movie. At least that's how it felt to me. Did you quit film school to go work? What ha- here's In what film? happened. Here's what happened. I w- it was 1983. Mm-hmm. I was going to film school. I needed a job for the summer. I needed some money. You know? <laughs> and a friend of mine was uh, a PA on the show Taxi. And I he had a party at his house. And I was at his house. And I said, I really need a job for the summer. You know yeah. anything? And he said, you know, as a matter of fact, um, there's there's an opening at this place I'm working. So some of the... Uh, so there's there were there's four producers on Taxi. The show's coming to an end. Mm-hmm. There's four producers. Three of them are going and making a new show, and one of them is going and making a movie. And the PAs are all throwing, are all betting that the TV show's going to be a hit and yeah. the movie's not going to work. So if you want a job working for the guy who's doing the movie, I think <laughs> I can get you in there. So I said, okay, that, that'd be great. So he got me an interview. I went in and I got that job, yeah. right? Well, that movie that they thought was going nowhere <laughs> was Terms of Endearment, yeah. <laughs> which won five Academy Awards the next year. <laughs> and at this point, the, the movie had already sh- shot, but they needed a PA for post-production. Mm. So I got a job doing, as a post-production PA on Terms of Endearment for Jim Brooks, you know, who was this legendary TV producer and writer, and he had written and directed Terms of Endearment. Now he had, you know, he had this giant career. So just as I started, he was making this transition into movies yeah. and becoming like, a, you know, a giant with with a foot in each world in TV and film. Yeah. And I just happened to luck into that, Oof. right? So, <laughs> so that's where, where I was in 1983. Well, I kept... I, I got that job. I thought it was going to be a summer job, but it yeah. was such a great job. I ended up like not going back to film school. I kept <laughs> renewing. I kept saying, "I'm coming back," and you know, t- t- taking an official leave of absence. Sure. I did that for five years, and then finally I let it go, and I never finished film school. <laughs> but you, which is work. kind of a bummer. I wish I had. Yeah, well, there's always time. You can always go back. <laughs> I can go back now. Yeah, you can go back now. Absolutely. It's, it's still there. I think UCLA is still there. Yeah, yeah I think um, it is. Yeah, yeah, it's still there. But that's that's so funny that you say that because I think that everybody's story of success, there is always an element of right place, right time. And I think that's a great uh, example of if you want to work in film, you have to live in LA. You have to come because you met a, a friend of yours who was having a party, who's had this job, and then all these sort of great yeah, connections. Yeah, things just kind of land. And they you land, never yeah. go in the direction you think you're going to go in. You yeah. always end up going. It's it's really like slipping on a banana peel, and it's wherever you you, you know you <laughs> land, that's where you're going to be. You know, yeah, not necessarily what you thought when you went in. You started working on these big, big movies, broadcast news, say anything big. Big is one of my all-time favorite movies. I love great that movie. movie. It's a great movie. But um, yeah, what was it like working on those films? Well, you know, I had kind of a minor, uh, I had I had a bigger role in say anything, but yeah. on the, the others, I kind of, I was I would be a PA or I would be, I was kind of a guy at the office who was taking care of things mm-hmm. on all those films. I, I was very, I had a very minor role in those movies. Big was a script that came in. I was a script reader just before that, and Big came in, and it was just this amazing. The, the first draft, the writer's draft that we had, yeah, um, was just kind of a stunning script. It was just you read it and you go, "Wow, this is a great movie." And if you've, I don't know how many people have ever read scripts for a living, but you're <laughs> just reading 
garbage. You know? <laughs> You're just reading such terrible stuff. And when you see something good, it's like you feel like, you know, like a guy in the desert who comes upon some water. You yeah. Know? You go, oh my gosh, a good script. I can't believe it. And that's how that was. It was a really yeah. great script. So. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. And you were saying that you had a bigger role in saying anything. You were an associate producer. Yeah. So yeah. what was that sort of like? Was that a leap or was that sort of, well, you know? Well, it was kind of both. At the time, see, a couple of things. I was working for this company that was doing all kinds of TV and film at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I, at that point, was working on the Simpson one-minute cartoons on the Tracy Ullman show. Yeah. And just before that, okay, like a year before that, I happened to be in Jim Brooks's office. His secretary had gone to lunch and I was at the desk, right? Just doing, you know, being his secretary, answering the phone and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And Cameron Crowe, who was working on uh, Say Anything, came into the office. Yeah. And he looked, he's a, he's a really nice guy. <laughs> he's very young at the time and he'd written this script. He had written, he had also done Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Yeah. And now he had written the script that he was hoping to direct. And he was working with Brooks to kind of get it in shape. And he was having a meeting with Brooks and he looked kind of upset. And I said, what's the matter? What's, what's bugging you? And he said, you know, I've got this scene that I just can't crack. I just can't figure it out. And I said, well, if you don't mind telling me, what is it? I was just asking. I was just, I was yeah. nobody, right? I was somebody man, you know, answering the phone. And he said, well, I've got this, this you know, our, my female lead, and she's supposed to be the smartest girl, the smartest girl in school. And she's going to be making this valedictorian speech. And I got to come up with something interesting to do with the valedictorian speech. And I'm a, I'm a little stumped right now. Yeah. I know I'll crack it, but I'm a little stumped. And I sat there and I said, you know, kind of like, you know, like raising my hand a little yeah. bit. I said, <laughs> I said, well, um, I got an idea if you want to hear it, you know, like that. That's how everything happens in Hollywood. <laughs> and so I, he said, sure, what do, you, what do you got? And I said, well, you know, every time you hear a valedictorian speech, it's always about how everything's going to be great and how we're all going on and to, to great things and, you know, this kind of, kind of, you know, insipid optimism. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, I don't think that's real. I think that what it's really like when you're graduating high school is you're scared. You know, you're sitting there thinking, God, I have to start my life now. I, I, maybe I'm going to go to college. Maybe I'm going to get a job. But, I, but I'm scared. I don't know what to do. And I think an interesting valedictorian speech that I've never heard is, instead of, this is great, we're all going on to great things, is, I'm scared. What's it going to be like? I don't know what's going to happen now. Yeah. And so, I thought, what if that's her speech? And he looked at me and he said, that's a great idea. <laughs> so, so, we walked in. So, just about then, Rook said, send Cameron in. So, he went into the room. Yeah. And he pitched the idea and Brooks loved it. And Cameron, because he's kind of a mensch, you know, he's a good guy, said, yeah. well, Paul came up with the idea. He said it. <laughs> and so, he said, bring him in here. So, I come into the room and they said, you came up with that idea? And I said, oh, I, you know, just a suggestion. And he goes, that's a great idea. You know, Cameron's going to write that. You know, that's great. And so, they decided to reward me. They made me an associate producer on the show. <laughs> but let me tell you something. If you've never, if you've ever been an associate producer on a show, that's not a great gig. <laughs> you think it's going to be great, but you're there trying to solve every problem that comes up. That's what your life is like. So yeah. So I remember one thing I had to do was there was this joke that in, that involved these girls who were looking at a screen, and you see them watching a TV. It said like at a party, and there's these these this punk girls who have like a band. Remember this is like 1988, 89, mm -hmm. and they say, oh, we are so much better than those guys. Those guys are, are so no good. And then you cut to what they're looking at, and it's the Beatles. <laughs> right um that was the joke right 
But that meant that they had to get footage of the Beatles. Oh. And you cannot get footage of the Beatles. (laughs) It doesn't matter. At that time, no matter how much money you were willing to spend, the Beatles were not interested. Yeah. So so my job was to go and try to get the Beatles. And so every night I'd call London and I'd speak to, I think it was Neil Aspinall is one of the the famous Beatles guys. And I would get him on the phone and I had to do it at night because they were in London. So I'd call up and get this guy on the phone, beg him for this footage. We could pay. For it, where you know, yeah. saying, and he would say over and over again, really nicely. I'm I'm sorry, but we're not going to do it. And then every morning, I'd go in, and the producer would yell at me for saying, <laughs> saying, you're 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 not going anywhere. You can't even do this simple thing." And it was just the worst thing. <laughs> <laughs> did you get to work on the Tracy Ullman show working on the Simpsons shorts that was at Gracie Films how did all of that happen <laughs> okay that's a really funny story all right so Matt Groening started out as a newspaper cartoonist and he had this cartoon that he'd been doing at that point for more than a decade I think yeah called Life in Hell Life in Hell and it was this comic strip that would appear in underground newspapers like in those days the LA Reader which doesn't exist anymore mm-hmm. eventually it moved to the LA Weekly but in any case in those days it was the LA Reader someone had bought a copy of the way that 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 those uh, early cartoon strips were drawn is remember this is before digital so yeah. what they do is they draw it on a big poster board like you know the size of a of a movie poster they draw the cartoon and you know they draw it in pencil and then ink it in and then they photograph the the final product and then shrink it down and put it in the newspaper. Mm. And someone had given Brooks the original poster-sized board for one of Matt's cartoons. And he had it framed in his office. That's the background for this story. (laughs) So, Brooks is having a meeting in his office to talk about this Tracy Ullman show that he's going to do, which is based on this British comedian, Tracy Ullman. It's going to be a sketch comedy show, and he's describing what it's going to be like. And he said, I've decided that to go between the sketches you know, seven-minute episodes in this show, mm-hmm. I want to do animation. Someone said, okay, what kind of animation do you want to do? Mm-hmm. And he said, let's get that guy. And pointed <laughs> to that poster, right? Okay, now, I'm 24 years old. I happen to be sitting, he had these stairs that led down into his office, and I was sitting on the stairs eagerly watching, you know, I was just a kid, right? Yeah. And just with stupid, youthful enthusiasm, I jumped up and I said, oh, I love that guy's work. That's a great idea. We yeah. should, you should, that's a wonderful idea. And he looked at me and he said, great, go and do it. And I said, <laughs> go and do what? And he said, go make the cartoons. We need about two minutes a week. Go and do it. And I said, but I don't know anything about animation. And he said, well, you better learn. So, <laughs> so I was thrown into this thing. I didn't wow. know what I was doing. So I thought, what am I going to do? I'll get a copy of the cartoon. I'll mm-hmm. call every animation studio who are not well known in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. I'll go to LA. This thing called LA four one one, which was a like yeah. a little guidebook, and there'd be a you know list of the companies, you know, and their phone numbers. So I called every company, and I said. And there must have been 30 or 40 animation companies. I called them up and I said, I'm interested in doing this thing. We want to do two minutes a week. I'm going to send you a a copy of the Life in Hell strip, you know, Xerox of it. And then what I'd like you to do is send me a bid and you're you're real. Yeah. Right? So, (laughs) at some point, I had a big, you know, box full of VHS tapes of people's reels from these companies with their bids rubber banded around them. Right, mm-hmm. and I didn't even know what to do with these damn things. Like, oh, what am I gonna do? <laughs> so finally, they hire an associate producer for the Tracy Show. I'm not the associate pe- producer; I'm lower than that at yeah. this point. And he comes in. It's this nice guy named Jeffrey Townsend. He comes in and he says, 
so what's going on with this thing? And I said, well, I got the shoebox full of these reels. And he said, well, are any of them any good? Have you watched them? And I said, yeah, I've watched them all. I said, most of them are like, you know, this was at the a real low point in animation. We're talking about, you know, animation was just really junky with Smurfs and Jolly Green Giant commercials and nothing that I liked, right? Yeah. And so I said, I've looked to it and most of it's just that, but there's this one reel that's kind of cool. And I said, really? And he said, yeah, let's do it. He said, show it to me. Well, it was Klasky Chupo's reel. Yeah. Had this really cool cartoons on it, these really cool animations. It turned out that those animations were all done by a bunch of young people that Gabor had hired to come and do something. He hadn't done any of them. They were all like student films from from like Cal Arts and UCLA and places like that. Yeah. And they were really cool. You know, these really cutting edge cool things. Yeah. And and so he watched them and he said, boy, these really are good. Let's go down and meet this guy. So we went down and we met him. Now at the time, Gabor had this little studio on Seward Street in Hollywood, and he was producing, I mean, there was very little character animation being done in those days. Yeah. And so, he was producing, like, spinning logos, because that, this yeah. was before computers. So, if you wanted to do Channel 5, they'd do a little 5 and then move yeah. it around and animate it, right? And, and it was that for, was for the, TV and for movies, too? Were they doing logos and yeah, stuff? Yeah, they were doing all kinds of stuff yeah. like that, but it was, none of it was very creative. It was just bread and butter stuff, you know? So, we went down there, and he was really anxious to this, because Gabor was a European-trained animator. He was really good. And he had just come here a few years before, and but he was waiting for his break, right? So, here comes his break in the door, yeah, right? And so, he said, we can do this. He gave us a great bid for it. And so, we started, we thought, okay, let's do it with them. So, we hired them to do these Simpson one-minute cartoons. I didn't know how cartoons worked. <laughs> and I knew that I was working for very tough people that were not going to put up with anything subpar. Yeah. So I thought, how do I control this beast? <laughs> and so I thought, well, I know how to write a script. And Matt's a funny guy. Yeah. He was a newspaper guy, so he didn't even know what a script looked like. But we sat down, I showed him how you do a script. <laughs> and, we d and we got on, you know, we'd get on WordPerfect and we'd type up a little two-page script. And we'd type up three of them. So, yeah. the Simpson One Minutes, you can look them up on, they're all on YouTube. They're so great. What they are is they're like, yeah. set up, set up, set up, payoff, right? That's what they are. So, we'd write these little, these little things. And then we would, and I thought, but how do I control animation? I'm not an animator. How can I know that it's going to be any good? And I thought, well... I know how to do voices. Mm. So what if I go in and I record the voices and I edit the tracks and I make it so it's it's funny just as as tracks, just, just as audio. a radio show, yeah. right? Yeah. So it's like an old-fashioned radio show. So I would cut them and I'd edit them real tight and there'd be overlapping dialogue and you know like like and, and it would be really fast-paced. Yeah. And and I'd edit it that way. And then I'd go into the studio and I'd say, okay, here's the story. Here's the tracks. From here to here, this run of dialogue, you don't change it. You don't open it up. You don't close it down. You keep the relationship between these lines exactly as I, as they are here. Yeah. Right? But this area right here where it's a visual gag, you can do whatever you want. Go nuts. Yeah. Right? And Matt would do what he thought a storyboard was, which was basically a newspaper cartoon, yeah. right? His version of a storyboard. And we'd go in there with that, and then these there was D uh, David Silverman and his crew of guys would take that, and then they'd turn that into a real storyboard, and they'd do some, you know, some... They weren't animating it. it was, animation was done in Korea, mm -hmm. so they would set it up for that. They'd do the timing, they'd mm -hmm. do key poses, and that would go off to, to Korea, get animated, come back, we'd edit a little bit, we shot it a little over. We shot, as I recall, we shot ten or fifteen seconds over what we needed, so we had something to edit. We cut them down to length, yeah. And then we'd add sound effects, and then we'd go on the air. 
a year or two into the show, we had so many of these cartoons that they decided, you know, they had a warm-up comedian. I don't know if people know how those are done, but you have a warm-up comedian who comes in and does jokes to get the audience laughing and feeling yeah. good. Well, we stopped hiring warm-up comedians, just played the cartoons because <laughs> we had enough of them. And the Fox Network, which is brand new at that time, yeah. by this time I'm an associate producer myself, yeah. and I'm down on the floor dressed like I am now in jeans and a shirt, <laughs> and these guys are in suits, you know, the executives at Fox, at the Fox Network, and I'm saying to them, do you see how they're laughing? At these cartoons? Yeah. There's something here. Yeah. But the conventional wisdom was that adults won't watch cartoons. So they wouldn't oh. they were afraid they didn't want to go to a to, to a series. Finally, yeah. Brooks, who was on top of the world at that point, just said, Yeah, we're doing a series. Yep. They bought the series. The series went on air in I think I want to say nineteen ninety. Nineteen ninety was the Christmas that's right. special. Right. That, exactly. That Christmas over an special. Open fire, and yeah. it was an instant hit. Yeah. And suddenly it became the case that adults did watch cartoons. I found that my, you know, I was promoted to being a producer, but mm -hmm. like a line producer. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't want to be a line producer. And I wasn't really happy. And I decided maybe this wasn't for me. Yeah. And just at that point, Gabor Chupo came to me and said, hey, you want to do, you want to come work for me? Because I had said that I want, I would, I told everybody I was leaving. I thought I was going to become a teacher. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was done with the film business. Wow. And he said, you want to come work for me? And I said, doing what? And he said, uh, doing development, and I said, I've done development. I'm not sure. And he said, Hey, like you can't. This was the this was the summer of 1989. It was the beginning of the summer. It was like June of, or maybe even May of 1989. Yeah, my I just had a baby. Yeah, right? I just gotten married and had a baby. And he said, Why don't you come work for me? If you don't like it, you can always go back and do teaching. I said, Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, Gabor didn't understand what development was. <laughs> so usually, what development is is that you procure other people's ideas you you like find take pitches you and, take pitches yeah. and you're looking for people's artwork and people's ideas you know and mm -hmm. that's what development is Gobber didn't understand that he thought development was come up with ideas yeah and so he said <laughs> so come up with animated show ideas and i said well okay yeah and so i started coming up with ideas yeah okay now this takes you to about the middle of the summer of 1989. Mm -hmm. So I've just got all these ideas and I'm mm -hmm. getting artwork done. You know, we've, we're hiring artists to come up with artwork to go with these ideas that, that we're planning cool. on a pitch that Gabor sure will someday come, but so far nobody's asked us. Yeah. Well, it turns out that there was this little company that was, there was a little cable company that was showing cartoons on the air. Yeah. And, but they were all, you know, they were all library cartoons, like old Warner Brothers cartoons and stuff like that. And then a few game shows, you know, inexpensive game shows shot in Florida, mm -hmm. Nickelodeon. Yeah. And suddenly, uh, there's this young executive named v Vanessa Coffey mm -hmm. who comes up with this idea. She, she goes to, uh, to Jerry Laybourne, who was running Nickelodeon at the time. This is all stuff I found out later. I didn't know this. <laughs> and she says to Vanessa, uh, Vanessa says, you know, if you produce your own animation... You can own it, which yeah. the networks can't couldn't own their own animation by law at that time. But but the cable cables were not really a network, oh. so they could own their own show. So she said, "You can make your own animation. You can own it, and it's evergreen." Yeah. So you should go and do this. And and Jerry thought that was a great idea. So she hired Vanessa to go and f and find cartoons to put on you know original cartoons to put on Nickelodeon. So we get a call, because we're the guys who are about to do The Simpsons. It wasn't on the air yet. And we get a call at Klasky Chuba, and they say, Vanessa, wants th this woman at Nickelodeon wants to take pitches. Mm -hmm. So we start preparing all our shows. So I've got yeah. all these ideas. Paul, you're on. This is what I've been waiting yeah. for. So I've got all these ideas, you know, and I'm preparing artwork for them and all that. 
So the night before the pitch, Arlene Klasky, Gabor Chupo's wife, who's a principal in the company, and she's mm-hmm. a graphic artist, she's, she comes to me and she says, I've got an idea for a show. And I say, what's that? And she said, I want to do a show about babies. I said, okay, what about babies? And she says, you know, babies. Yeah. They're cute. They run around. <laughs> I have a baby. We could call it one something. Yeah. And I said, but what is it? And that's all she could say. That's what she knew. I thought, yeah. I don't know what to do with that. So that night I went to I went home. This thinking, is the night before the pitch. This is the night before the pitch. Wow. That night I go home and I'm thinking, babies, babies, babies. And you have a baby. At I this have point. a baby. Yeah. So I'm thinking about babies, babies, babies. What do I think about babies? What do I do with that? I remembered, and just as I'm falling asleep, I remember I'm the oldest of four boys, mm-hmm. right? No no sisters. And I remembered when my youngest brother came home from the hospital when he was just born. Mm-hmm. And I remember going into his room. I'm eight years old. Mm-hmm. And I go into his room and I see him there in his crib. Nobody else is around. And he's like drooling and, you know, he can't <laughs> focus his eyes. And he's kind of trying to lift his head and going like that, you know, dropping his head. <laughs> can't do anything. He's an infant, right? He's, he was newborn baby. He's a week old or something. Yeah. And I looked at him and I said, you know, I got three. You know, I this stupid thought when you're eight years old. I thought... He can't be that stupid. He cannot be that dumb. I bet he's faking us out. I bet. I wonder if when we leave the room, yeah. he suddenly gets cognizant and yeah. starts talking, mm-hmm. you know? So it's just this stupid eight-year-old thought. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, but I remembered that. When I woke up in the morning, I was thinking about that. I thought, hmm. And I scribbled something down. Now I go to the pitch. Mm-hmm. Pitch my first idea. As I recall, it was about a bunch of bugs who who uh, who live in a city or something. You know, okay. a city of bugs. You know, like a film noir with bugs. Yeah. Pitch that. Mm, no. Okay. Mm, no, she doesn't like it. Okay, so I go on my next idea. My next idea, I have like a little less artwork and maybe one page of description. Doesn't work for her. Go to my next one. It's like a half a page of... Of, of writing and no artwork. Yeah. She doesn't like that one. So now I'm down to my one paragraph pitches. Ugh. And I'm thinking, so, so it's like, I'm pitching this, I'm pitching this. She's not liking anything. I finally get to my last pitch. I said, a bunch of little incognizant babies, but when the adults leave the room, the babies talk. And she said, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> and that's how we sold Rugrats. I think that, that Rugrats is one of those ideas that when you first hear about it, I don't care what age you are, you think, that's a great idea. How has this not been done before? You know what I mean? It's just it's such one a, of those weird yeah. things, you know? They used to call those ideas that you could just say in one sentence, they used to call that high concept. And if you think about television from the 60s and 70s, a lot of it, I mean, the, the old stuff is mm-hmm. all high concept. You know, mm-hmm. a, an astronaut finds a genie in a bottle yeah. and she's a really cool <laughs> chick, you know, I, you know, that, you know yeah. the, the, bewitched, you know, the, yeah. you know an, a modern family except the wife's a witch, you yeah. know, Th- those were high concepts. So, right. so that kind of, that's an old kind of standard in TV. Mm-hmm. And somehow it's it, it works particularly well for animation. What you said earlier, which is something I love, I want to unpack for a second, was that people then thought that adults wouldn't watch cartoons when you were working on The Simpsons. And people didn't know when Nickelodeon started to develop these shows that that would work. And both of those ended up being huge hits. And I remember I used to watch The Simpsons. I would have it on TV. And my dad, because it was a cartoon, would say, change it, change the channel. And I'd be like, oh, okay. And I would wait about 30 seconds. And then he would laugh. And then I would be like, I'm in the clear. And as a kid, I'm like, I tricked you. I fooled you. Like, that was that was the uh, the show. And That and, was one of yeah. the things we did with Rugrats, you know, which, yeah. was, which was we, you know, there was a lot of people, there were a lot of people telling us that, oh, you guys are doing babies all wrong. You don't know how to tell stories about mm-hmm. babies and stuff like that. <laughs> and they would tell us, we know about babies and and babies are like this and so they would they would start to tell us and so what we started to do is parody like parents of children yes and the idea was 
they're kind of clueless. Yeah. <laughs> and what was great is that Nickelodeon in those days, when it started out, kind of one of its like subtext theme that they liked was the kids are smart and parents don't understand them. Yeah. You don't like like kids, you get what's going on, but your parents don't get it. Right. Yeah. Um, in the original pilot that we made that was a huge hit with kids, it was just Tommy mm-hmm. and Phil and Lil and the dog and Dee Dee, Dee Dee and Stu mm-hmm. and uh um, and grandpa. That's it. That's it. No Chucky, no Angelica. They weren't invented yeah. yet. Yeah. The, the, I wrote that pilot with, with with another guy, and we we were just telling the story of this one baby, right? The parents were important in that they didn't know what was going on. Yeah. We were it was sort of like the secret life of babies. That was in the pilot and it became part of what the series was. And so the parents were always clueless. Having clueless parents was always a part of the show, mm-hmm. right? It was always there. We made more of it. We did B plots with it that got bigger as we went to series. Yeah. But it's there even in the pilot. It was yes. always part of the story. Can you tell us a little bit about the concept of babies being cognizant? You said at first that they would be able to get up, walk around, speak, and they would only do it when the parents weren't in the room. And eventually, as the show went on, as you guys were developing it and working on it, it turned into, well, now babies, when they do speak in front of the parents, it's just baby gibberish. Like parents aren't going to be able to understand that. How did that idea sort of this is a that. really important part of the show. Yeah. We wanted to say, and it was one of my frustrations with where the show went later after I left. Because mm-hmm. I, I did the first 65 half hours. First and then, 65, yeah. And then that was all that was there was going to be. And then later they came back and did more, but I wasn't involved with them. Mm-hmm. And one of the keys to the show was the babies and the parents don't speak to each other. Mm-hmm. They're they're like in separate worlds. Mm-hmm. That as far as the adults are concerned, the babies just talk baby talk and that's it. Yeah. And as far as the babies are concerned, they pick up little bits of what the adults are saying, but they don't really yeah. understand. They it, mispronounce right? the words. The only yeah. <laughs> connection between them in the series was Angelica. That's right. And the idea was that Angelica's older than the others, so she is the she is the connection between the two worlds. Other yeah. than and, so, and but she uses that to her advantage to torment the kids. So she's always giving them either <laughs> purposely or because she doesn't really get it she's because she's always certain and often wrong yeah she would give them the wrong information right yeah. or she she would sometimes do it purposely to torment them or or other times she would just get it wrong herself mm-hmm. but the joke was that they never they never connected there was no connection it was two separate worlds you know chucky you're not looking too well oh, i'm done open your mouth but angelica check my medical book. Hmm. Just as I thought. What is it, Angelica? Chucky, you've got rhinoceritis. I want to ask, too, about Chucky's mom. Initially, you guys okay. didn't have... There was like... It was so like here was the story air. with that. Yeah. So... So first, we we came up with characters that babies that we wanted in the show. I wanted to come up with. I knew yeah. from work that I had done on you know working for Jim Brooks at Gracie Films for years that what you needed was an ensemble cast. You needed a lot of characters. In yeah. the pilot, I've only got Tommy and Phil and Lil. That's it. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, if I'm gonna in the series, I've got to have a group, right? Yeah. And so and I need characters that are going to pull in opposite directions and create conflict because drama is conflict. Yeah. And that's in comedy too. You need that conflict, right? Yeah. So I thought, okay, if Tommy is the intrepid leader who always wants to go out and explore the world, mm-hmm. I need a reticent guy who's <laughs> f- frightened of the world and doesn't want to do that. Yeah. Right? And so that's how we came up with Chucky, right? And then I thought, I need, how about, I, I thought, we, we were talking about a bully character. Yeah. And 
And I said, well, I want to do this bully that I had. Because I remember when I was a kid, I had this, there was, I was picked on by this, there was this really mean girl bully that used yeah. to pick on me. And I thought, you had an well, Angelica. I had an Angelica in my life. And I thought, that's funny. Let's do a girl bully. I haven't seen that before. Yes. And that's how Angelica was invented. And then mm -hmm. we kind of, from there, I thought, oh, well, what if she's a little older? And so she's mm -hmm. this connection. But that all came a little later. The mm -hmm. um, point was, we, we came up with all these kids, right? Mm -hmm. Well, then we thought, okay, now we've got these kids how do they all get together? Because yeah. they can't they can't just walk over to each other's yeah. houses. They're babies. <laughs> so we started to have to come up with parents. So yeah. we came up with we came up with uh, uh, Betty and Howard, mm -hmm. and Tommy already had parents, so that was cool. Mm -hmm. And so and so and Angelica, we came up with, with she's she's Tommy's cousin. So cousin. we came up with Drew, and then later we came up with Drew's wife. You know, mm -hmm. but in the meantime, we were thinking, okay, well, what about Chucky? And we came up with Chucky's dad, Chuck Sr., because we thought it'd be funny to have a, a like a Chucky who's a grown-up, yeah. but he's just the same. You yeah. know, we thought that was really funny. <laughs> but we never, but initially we didn't, we had no need to like figure out Chucky's mom. So we didn't sure. do it. We just had him there. Yeah. And then people started asking us, well, tell, what's what about Chucky's mom? Yeah. So we thought, well, she hasn't shown up. We don't want to suddenly have her show up. Right. So what are we going to do? Well, there's two possibilities. Mm -hmm. Either Chucky... Chucky's mom is divorced from Chucky's dad, mm -hmm. or Chucky's mom is dead. Yeah. One of the two. Both sad. <laughs> right. So, so I thought, okay, so first we said, well, we like, what if we do divorce? And people said, oh, no, no, you can't do divorce. That'll upset children. Yeah. Which I thought was ridiculous. Yeah. But we had big arguments about this, and people, you know, other producers on the show said, no, 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 you can't do divorce. Divorce yeah. is bad. We don't want to show really kids divorce. really interesting. Yeah. It'll hurt them. And I said... Okay, well then she's dead. And she's like, well, you can't do death. <laughs> kids don't. Kids don't want to see that. Bummer. We can't do that. Yeah. And so finally, we just said, well, I guess we can't do anything. <laughs> and so we made. So what we did instead is we just started making little joke references. Yeah. Chuck Senior made a reference to his mom, which was which was vague. Yeah. In one of the episodes, I, Peter Gaffney, one of the writers, came up with that. And we threw that in. Yeah. But we never really dealt with the mom because people wouldn't let us. Yeah. Right. Then, in time, after I left the show and mm -hmm. after years went by, they decided, oh, we'll do this whole um, we're sad thing yes, about, yeah. <laughs> about Chucky's mom being dead. And yeah. I thought, well, you know, we could have done that back in the series, but sure. they wouldn't let us. <laughs> Hi, guys. What you doing? Looking for a Mother's Day present? Uh, what's Mother's Day? Well, it's the day everybody gives their mom stuff because we aren't Angelica. You want to look with us? Okay. But who would I give a present to? You don't got to mom, do you, Chucky? Nope. How come? I don't know. I just don't got one. When did you know that Rugrats became like a cultural phenomenon and Recess became a hit? We Here's the interesting thing about Rugrats. We got three Emmys while those first 65 were on the air. So we knew mm -hmm. that, that we had that feedback that it was successful. Mm -hmm. Nickelodeon was just really in its infancy when those shows went on the air. Absolutely. And so the ratings they were getting... Were nothing compared in those days compared to what the the networks were getting. Yeah. So they you say we got a one share and we go really yeah. that you know <laughs> that was so strange to us. So we really didn't have feedback on what success was. In yeah. fact, we knew the show was successful and we knew that people liked it and we knew that it was renewed till we got to sixty five and then we stopped. But what yeah. happened was 
So in, so we got to 65 episodes. We finished producing those in 1993. Mm-hmm. And then they went into repeats, and we all went our separate ways to do other mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. And then in the mid-90s, I want to say 95, 96, but I'm not sure exactly the mm-hmm. year. You can look it up. Um, Nickelodeon decided to run them in prime time, and then they really took off. But that was after I'd already left. Got it. And in fact, the show wasn't in production anymore, and suddenly it took off. And then they decided to do more episodes, and they brought it back, and there was all that, which I wasn't involved with. I was doing Mm -hmm. other things at Mm -hmm. that point. I was on doing Recess. Yeah. Recess, we had a better sense of, because it was on on ABC Saturday morning, we knew what the numbers were, and we could see that we were really a hit. That's awesome. It was very clear to us that we really hit. Where did the idea for recess come from okay so my partner joanne solibert was working on hey arnold mm-hmm. and that was happening here mm-hmm. i had helped with the pilot but i wasn't working on the series sure. yet. but there was you remember that there was that thing that it, that helga was in love with arnold right? yeah <laughs> but a thing that kind of bugged joe and me and it's really, if you think about it, it's conceptual. It doesn't matter. But I think the fuck is going to say, well, she's got this, she's obsessed with this this boy, and that's fine. But they're nine-year-olds, you know? Yeah. And I thought, we thought, nine-year-olds don't fall in love with each other. That's, <laughs> like, maybe that felt like like 11 or 12-year-olds, yeah. right? To us, we remembered, like, when you go, ooh, I'm attracted to that girl, or ooh, I'm attracted to that guy, is when you're 11 or 12. Mm-hmm. But they're nine-year-olds in fourth grade, and we thought, mm-hmm. that's not how it is. Mm-hmm. At least that to us. We didn't think that was real. One of the things we did, so not that there was anything wrong with that. I mean, right. it was really popular, and it was great, and, it, so and, great. and Craig is a, a great guy, and he did really interesting things. But one of the things we thought was, well, what if we told told a story about more what we think it's really like to be nine years old? Yeah. I think Joe was kind of coming out of that and saying, I want to do a show about what it felt like to me to be nine years old. Yes. And we also thought about school and we thought, what is school really? You know, yeah. what is the part of school you remember when you think back and you tell stories to your buddies about, you remember when this happened? You remember when that happened to people like now? When yeah. you, if you right now, you were, you know, I don't know how old you are, but you know, <laughs> you you meet with your, your friends from that you knew from elementary school and you say, remember this, remember that? Yeah. The stuff you're talking about it's almost always on the playground at recess. Absolutely. Because, yeah, you'll remember some things from class. Remember how you goofed something in class yeah. <laughs> or some guy farted or something. But, yeah. but what, what, really, what you really think about when you think about school is the playground at recess. And so we thought, what if we did a whole show mm-hmm. that's just about the playground at recess? Mm-hmm. And that was how we came up with, with recess. Tell us about how the development for Lloyd in Space came about. Joe and I always thought we're always doing shows about the age of our actual kids. Yeah. More or less. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so when our kids were one-year-olds, we were doing Rugrats. When our kids were in elementary school, we were doing Recess. So we thought, okay, what's the next one? Mm -hmm. And we thought, well, let's do junior high, middle school. Well, for us, it was junior high. For you guys, middle school. Yeah. Um, And we thought, but what is that? So, So here's how we thought of it. Okay, if Rugrats is about you've discovered the world and I mean, you're discovering the world and it's really exciting and you just want to go explore it. Yeah. And Recess is about, okay, now you're older, you know the world, it's a scary place. How do you survive it? And the answer is with with the help of your friends. Yeah. That's what Recess was. You know, you got the guys below you and the guys above you and everybody's, it's a it's a really hard world to navigate. How are you yes. going to make it? <laughs> that's, that's Recess. And he thought, well, what's, okay, what's junior high? And we thought... 
Junior high is alienation. Junior high is where you feel like mm-hmm. you feel uncomfortable, you feel awkward in your skin, you feel just weird and 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 you're suddenly attracted to the opposite sex and what do you do with that, yeah. you know? Yeah. And you and, feel like that the rest of your life just yeah, it maintains. Thought, okay, so we thought, okay, but how do we do that? What makes it animated? What makes yeah. that a cartoon? I mean, you could be doing Wonder Years was doing that in live action, right? Yeah. What are we going to do? What's our version of that? And we thought well, what if that awkward teenager is an alien, and what if his world is a is a crappy space station? And so we thought we wanted to do kind of you know at that time people were into dystopian stuff, you know. Yeah. And we said we, 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 it's sort of what Matt Groening picked up on when he was doing when he was doing Futurama. It's like the future isn't necessarily going to be this golden wonderful place. It, yeah. What if it's just going to be crappy like life is now, yeah. <laughs> just broken down and you know. So we have a broken down space station. It's not this wondrous great thing. It's yeah. a crappy you know place where you got you know and and so it. That's where we put him. We put this guy, you know, he's going to school and he's got this teacher who's mean. She's a robot, but she's a mean teacher. And yeah. He's got girls he's attracted to, but, you know, maybe they're green. So that was Lloyd in Space. Do you, Paul, do you have any favorite fan interactions? Do you have a favorite response to people when you tell them, oh, I did this, I worked on this show, well, worked on this show? One of my favorite things, <laughs> I just thought this was so funny, is... There started being this dark rumor on the internet, maybe you've seen it, that Rugrats is actually, Angelica is this <laughs> insane child, and Rugrats is yeah. entirely in her imagination, yes. and, and, and Tommy's really a dead baby. All this weird, dark stuff, yeah. and you know, and it really crazy stuff, and I would read this and I would go... How do people come up with it? You know, and they say, this is what's really going on. You know, somehow it was on Reddit or something. This is what the show's really about. Yeah, this is what they're really getting at. And I'm going, okay. Yeah. You know, and so I kind of go, that's not what I was thinking, but, you know, okay, that's that's cool if that's what you think. Yeah. (laughs) And so that was always a funny thing. I like it when anybody does it. You know what? You like it when your work moves people to try to analyze it and tell stories yeah. and say how it how it uh, there was a guy who wrote about watching recess and Vince really giving him the first just regular black character that yeah. he can relate to there was yeah. this this guy who's an adult now who's writing about how that really changed his life and it's gave amazing. him something to you know mm-hmm. to feel like yeah that's me he saw himself there yeah that's really exciting to us so cool you know that's fantastic Paul thank you so much for coming in and telling those stories that was really really fun my pleasure I hope that was, that was useful I can go on and on I know I'm a long winded no. <laughs> dude well, there you have it, guys. We hope that you enjoyed our conversation with Paul Germain, legendary creator, producer, writer, director. Thank you again, Paul, for coming in and sharing some of your stories. Be sure to head over to nickanimationpodcast.com for all of our previous episodes and a bunch of cool behind-the-scenes awesome extra stuff, including a picture of Paul and I in front of this rad reptar here at Nickelodeon. Thanks to the awesome crew who puts this podcast together. This podcast is produced by Jonathan Highlander, Dana vasquez Eberhardt, Kelly Smith, Andrew Hubner. Original music Music by Useful Creatures. This week's episode edited by Josh Caldwell, Jonathan Highlander. All of the incredible social media for our podcast is made by Narbe Manassians, Sammy Armager, David Watson. And thanks to the man who works at controls and makes me sound better than I have a right to, Manny Gralva. Until next time, thanks for listening to the Nickelodeon Animation Podcast and keep watching cartoons. Cartoons.